Welcome to the Rising Sea Voices podcast on the American Shoreline Podcast Network. Here you will discover and learn from the new generation of coastal, estuarine, and ocean scientists and engineers. My name is Felicia Almeta Scholt, and I am the Rising Sea Voices host. Today we will learn more about 3D models of coral reefs and novel technologies for deep sea exploration. But before starting the episode, I would like to offer a land acknowledgement. I live and work in Vancouver, Washington. This land has been cared for and called home by the Chinook Indian Nation, the Kaolit Indian tribe, and the Chinookan, Tainapam, and Kekita peoples from Sami Memorial. In the 1800s, the Tainapam Indians were relocated to the Kaolit Reservation, where their descendants still live today, while many of the present-day descendants of the Kekita people are part of the Yakama Nation. The land where I live holds great historical, spiritual, and personal significance for its original stewards. However, there is still no federal acknowledgement of the Chinook as an Indian tribe, and the Kaolitz Indian tribe had to wait until 2000 to be officially recognized by the federal government. I recognize and continually support and advocate for the sovereignty of the native nations in this territory and beyond. Despite centuries of colonial theft and violence, this is still indigenous land. It will always be indigenous land. Indigenous people are not relics of the past, and their talents and knowledge are worth celebrating. Today, my guest is Alexa Runyon. And Alexa received her Bachelor of Science in Marine Science with a minor in Physics and a certificate in Data Science from the University of Hawaii at Hilo. Her undergraduate research focused on 3D reconstruction of coral reefs in the Hawaiian Islands for long-term monitoring in quantitative ecology. Now, a PhD student in Ocean Engineering, She's interested in the development of novel technologies for deep sea exploration to satisfy her curiosity of the unknown. Hello, Alexa, and welcome to Rising Sea Voices. How are you doing? Hi, Felicia. Thanks so much for having me. I'm doing really well. Nice. And uh, the, your bio is actually, you shared it with me, is really humble. I read a little more about you and you had like several prestigious awards, but before we dig into that, um, the question I ask all my guests is basically what pushed you in that way to study, you know, the ocean? So if you can tell me a little more about your story. Yeah, um, that's a great question. Actually, uh, going into my undergraduate career, I originally started studying music industry at the university, oh. Loyola University in New Orleans. Um because I had played nine years of jazz trombone and I thought I would go into music management. Um, but before I went to Loyola University, I spent two months in Hawaii. I had already been dive certified and diving for several years, um, but I spent those two months diving really often. And I kind of reconnected with the ocean during that time. Um, when I was there, there was one particular dive where Coming back from an evening dive, a night dive with the manta rays on the Kona coast, our boat was moored off of a shelf. And I just remember coming over the shelf and being in just darkness and water. And it was such a humbling experience. And it made me realize that I didn't want to stop doing that. And I wanted to learn more about the ocean. So I actually started my first semester at Loyola University. And during my first semester, applied to start marine science at UH Hilo the following semester. <laughs> Um, and then from there, I got really involved in the diving program. I participated in a quantitative underwater ecological 
surveying techniques course, uh, which is a two weeks field course in on the Kona side um, on Big Island. And I really loved it. I was just, I learned a lot about surveying the marine environment and using scuba diving as a tool for scientific research rather just for fun. Um, and from there, I, I started getting different opportunities with the people that I connected with. Um, and ultimately, scuba diving was my driving force for wanting to study the ocean and understand it better. Awesome. And and you said that you did this, you know, two-week training. Uh, I think the, the acronym is QUEST, correct? Yes. And can you tell us a little more about what you learned to do? What is, you know, some of the techniques you learned there? Yeah. Um, QUEST does all of the commonly accepted methods for surveying the marine environment that uh, NOAA's departments do. Um, so some of those techniques include benthic surveying techniques using quadrats. You would go on dives with these big, I think typically four by four quadrats uh, made out of PVC pipe, and we'd put them onto the benthos and on slates write down what kinds of benthic organisms we see, types of corals, urchins, other invertebrates. Um, and that way we can get a little bit more information about the, the reef composition. Another type of surveying technique that we would practice was rugosity, um, kind of an old fashioned method for rugosity. I think that one's starting to get phased out with 3D modeling becoming so prevalent in the marine environment. But this method was using rugosity chains. So you would lower down a chain into different crevices along the reef surface along a transect, and then you would measure how much of the chain and versus how far on the, along the transect that you got, and you would make a ratio of that to know how rugose the substrate was. And then we also did fish surveys, so I, both cylinder and transect line techniques where you either have a cylinder, a, well, an imagined cylinder along a transect where you're counting fish within your cylinder for a certain period of time, or you're swimming along a transect and counting the fish that you see as you swim by. And I guess you have to learn, you have to learn all the different species, right? Yeah, I think during my time at UH Hilo, I ended up learning, oh man, nearly 200 or maybe maybe closer to 350 to 400 <laughs> species. Wow. I don't know if I could name them all now, but we definitely <laughs> had to learn all the different species and their scientific spelling. Wow. <laughs> And after you decided, so tell me a little more about, you know, the research you did as an undergrad and then at that time. Yeah, I connected with Dr. John Burns during my time at Quest. And he is someone who I would say is a huge innovator for the way that we survey the marine environment, specifically because of this photogrammetry structure from motion technique that he established. Um Structure for motion and photogrammetry is pretty popular for a lot of land-based uses and not until John started applying it to the marine environment, it wasn't really used for surveying coral reefs. Um, but I was really interested in his research and I applied for an internship through the Ikevai program at uh, UH Hilo, and, which is an NSF-sponsored program. And I just spent time taking hundreds, thousands of photos and reconstructing them using different softwares um, into full re 3D reconstructions that we can pull information about the coral reefs from, like 
rugosity and slope and aspect and all these different things that we weren't able to get such a detailed picture of what's happening over time because you could literally go back to the same sites year after year and recreate these 3D models on dives and then see exactly how the elevation of the corals have changed, which basically shows you whether or not they're growing or if something is eroding, how well the corals are doing. You can see if certain colonies are growing or if they're dealing with diseases um, because these models we got to a three centimeter resolution. Wow, that's really good. But And you said, for example, for the photos, is it still photos that you, you know, people are going to collect like you follow a transect and you take you know photos all along this transect or you use other means to take those photos to after come back to the same site yeah so currently it's divers that go down with large dslr cameras and they're in very fancy underwater housings um but you'd set up a transect and you also have to set up a couple scale bars which are going to be targets for the software when you're reconstructing all of the photos that you've taken but you swim over the site in a boustrophodonic, which basically is just a fancy word for lawnmower pattern over the transect area. And you want to get up to 80% overlap so that you get all of those different images of, you end up capturing different angles of different of the same colonies. So that when you use those scale bars and targets to reconstruct it, it gets all of those details from the edges of it and it'll, co- it'll create a point cloud and then a mesh of those thousands of photos for, say, a 10-meter site. Wow, it looks like it's like so much data. Uh, it's amazing because I guess you take all those photos, I don't know so how many hours you know it takes to cover a certain area, and I don't know how big the areas are that you cover, but after, after to use all the models and you know, do the data cleaning and reconstruct everything, I cannot imagine how many hours it takes. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, it... So I think for NOAA, their standard is either 2 by 10 meters or 5 by 10 meters. Um, but with, yeah, for, for an area that's 2 by 10, I think we typically get about 1,200 to 1,500 photos, depending on how slow you're swimming. Okay. Um, and the models do take quite a long time to run. And is there, for your research, because right now the areas are, you know, have to stay pretty small. So when you want to cover much bigger areas, um, are there any different ways of doing it? That's actually something that I wanted to explore with my graduate research. Um, okay. Which it kind of goes hand in hand with the problems that you face with deeper ecosystems as well. You can't use divers because they, it's not sustainable. They don't have as much bottom time or it's, too, it's past the depth of scuba. Or it's that you want to collect larger areas, so you need something that's going to automate that process. Um, so I think for, for things like that, that's when ROVs or AUVs or other systems that are going to take a bunch of photos or video on its own, and you can guide it without having to have a diver or you know the, that reliance on airtime, um, and you can cover much larger areas that way. Yeah, so... No, that makes sense. And and coming back, you know, quickly at some of the results um, you got from those three D modeling and and analysis you've been doing, what were some of the I don't know highlights of of such projects? I know that you've been, you know, studying, for example, diseases or like you mentioned, like the growth of corals. 
um, what what did you see up there? One of our biggest, most, I think, for us, most impactful discoveries that we found was using that quantitative ecology, we got all these different, um, this different data about reef environments and comparing them across environments, we were able to find that the morphology of different coral species is a significant driver of the 3D complexity of the reef itself, which is a huge discovery because habitat complexity is really important for ecosystem success. Habitat complexity increase, increases food availability, resources like shelter and whatever else that prey fish might need to avoid predators. And it just ultimately is a sign of a healthier reef. So that was huge because we could take We could, we could identify the corals to species level from the 3D models, but we could also take specific information about how complex those structures were and see which coral species were driving the most complex habitats on reef environments. Oh, wow. And, and to do that, did you, all the sites you compare to are like, you know, around different islands in Hawaii or... What were the different sites you look at? You looked at most of our sites were different islands in Hawaii. Um, I didn't get to dive all of them, but during the time that that publication was coming out, I think most of the sites that I was focused on were in the northwestern Hawaiian Islands, um, specifically Rapture Reef at French Frigate Shoals was a big one that we were looking at, um, and a few others just around those smaller atolls out there. And did you compare those with some? you know, more, let's say, urbanized, less pristine area? For that particular paper, no, but that is definitely an ongoing field of study. Awesome. Yeah, because uh, that would be really interesting then to see, like you mentioned, the different corals there and, um, you know, the complexity we can find between those two different, uh, I mean, multiple sites. Absolutely. And what else... Um, You know, what were some of the, you know, things, I mean, during your time in Hawaii uh, related to your studies, I've seen also that you participated in a, in a boot camp in a way that you, you led um, in the Marshall Islands. Yeah, that was a really unique experience. Um, after my time at Quest, the following year, I was asked to return as a team leader for Quest again. Um, but because of that and some of my connections with Dr. John Burns and some of the people that we met at Quest the previous year, I was asked to come along for this trip to the Marshall Islands to help teach some of the students at the College of Marshall Islands about benthic surveying techniques as part of this Quest-like field school that we wanted to develop there for snorkel techniques um, for the different students that are studying marine science there. And we called that the MINT program, which was the Marshall Islands Nearshore Training Program. And I stayed out there for two weeks, basically teaching the quadrat methods and uh, photo quadrats as well. So kind of leaning into that, you know, we can start using photos and technology to make our data more descriptive of the benthic environment that we are surveying but not at the same scale as 3D modeling them per se. But we were taking photo quadrats and then using a system called Coral Point Count for them to go through and label specific 
randomly generated points on different photos to the species level. So we could see coral cover and what other types of species are present, what the algae cover is like, if there are any invertebrates. Um, so that was really a great opportunity to work with another culture and especially working with these students that were so interested in learning more about their native island and their oceans around it. And they wanted to do so much to protect it. All these students wanted to go into some sort of coastal resource management position in, after their college degrees on the island so that they could help and inform their communities about why we need to take care of our oceans, why we need to reduce pollution, how to manage the amount of fish that they're taking. Um, and that was a really, really awesome experience to connect with people from a culture completely different than my own, but to be able to communicate really well because we had the same goal of helping our oceans. Yeah, no, that's that's really great work. And and any challenges that this time you are the teacher, you are not the student. Uh, and especially, like you said, um, working with students from a different culture, any, you know, specific challenge in that or, or everything went smoothly? <laughs> I think there are always some challenges, especially working with people that, I mean, realistically, weren't that much younger than me. They were maybe a couple years younger <laughs> than I was. So coming in as a student still and being in this position of trying to educate others about what I've learned, but also doing my best to be mindful of their culture. And I think at first it was tough. Most of the students were male. There was one female student. And because of the Marshallese culture, a lot of it is they reduce kind of interaction between genders sometimes, especially in professional environments. So. It was a little tough getting some of the male students to communicate back with me when I would ask them questions. But by the end of the two weeks, I had gotten to know all of them pretty well. And it felt like they were more open to telling me when they did have an issue so I could help them through it rather than feeling shy about not being able to get their software to run properly or being confused about the distances to take photos in the water. Um, and then there's that other component of being responsible for students in the water, which adds another layer of safety. Um, but it, it ultimately, I think it went really, really smoothly. And I'm not sure with COVID, I, I'm sure it was complicated, but maybe they'll be doing the program again uh, this following summer. Yeah, no, that I hope so, because <clears throat> it seems like it's it's great, you know, to to go there and to, and to do these kind of works after. Um, yeah, because also it must be super expensive for them to travel to other universities to, to learn those kind of techniques. So it's great that they have people coming to them to, to help them um, passing on those techniques. Absolutely. When I was offered that position, I was, there was no way I was going to turn that down. I was very excited for the opportunity. And um, after, so you did your, your whole bachelor in Hawaii. Yeah. And hello. And then, because now you're a PhD student in Rhode Island, so it's funny, you kind of follow some of the path when I was younger. I actually did my bachelor in also Hawaii, and after I went to do my master in Rhode Island too. So <laughs> I was curious to know, um, 
what's the, you know, about this big change and also what decided you to go to this university? Yes, it is a very big change, especially with the weather. <laughs> I grew up in California, so <laughs> yeah. this is, I'm approaching my very first real winter. Um, but ultimately, I was very excited about the program for ocean engineering. I, after starting my minor in physics, I realized that I wanted to get into, and with the 3D modeling, I wanted to get into very technology-based solutions for surveying the marine environment. And I've always been very fascinated by the deep sea. So as I was looking at graduate programs, I came across Brennan Phillips Lab, the Undersea Robotics Imaging Laboratory. And I knew that I wanted to keep doing some sort of imaging of the seafloor. I've always been very passionate about coral research. And I'm also very interested in deep sea exploration, ocean exploration in general, because I think there is so much that we just don't understand about the ocean. And people seem to take that for granted. But I found his lab and it seemed like it would be a perfect solution for me to start diving in a little bit more with imaging solutions for deep sea environments because they pose additional challenges like the greater depth and there's no light down there. And I wanted to work with him to solve some of those problems. And also I wanted to to mention that you are now a student there, but also you got uh, an SF graduate fellowship that allows you to, I mean, it's like a really prestigious award. So congratulations, you know, first, uh, you know, on having this award. And also before we, let's say, dive in in what you would like to do for, you know, next in your research, uh, can you tell us a little more about this fellowship? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the Graduate Research Fellowship Program is a five-year fellowship that NSF provides to a limited number of graduate students every year. Um, the application process was probably one of the most intense application processes that I've ever gone through. That might have been <laughs> because of my own uh, anxiety about it and about applying. <laughs> but um, yeah, it was, you have to write a science proposal for your research plan, um, which is only allowed to be two pages. <laughs> and uh, then you also write a personal statement, which is allowed to be three pages. So you can kind of do a little bit of overlap, but they're pretty strict about their formatting. Um, and it's a, it's a five-year fellowship with a three-year funding period. Um, so I, once I received that award, I basically had already decided, but that solidified my decision to come to URI because I felt that having, being able to bring my own funding in and with the resources that Brennan has as well, I felt that it was going to be the most optimized place for me to grow as a researcher and for me to start moving forward in the field of ocean engineering, transitioning from marine science. Yeah, and I think also knowing the I know you sort of the background from, you know, Brennan, he has also his work as being also interdisciplinary. He has, you know, background also in, uh, I think, marine science in some sort and engineering. So he's, he's been doing both. Yes, it is nice to have the support from someone who's also interdisciplinary, um, because I will say that going into an engineering field has been quite intimidating. And do you have any, I know you just at the beginning of your, you know, program and... 
trying to figure out, you know, your research, but is there, you know, anything you have specifically in mind or, you know, what you would like to do? And after, let's say, you had all the resources possible, <laughs> what would you like to do? That's a great question. Um, right, right now, what I'm working on is what we're calling StereoPie, um, which is, I guess, a spinoff of Brennan's DPI project, which is a uh, drop camera system that is deep and cheap, how we describe it, which means that we, we pot, we build our houses and pot everything in-house using different Raspberry Pi circuit boards and camera combinations. So my current research that I've been trying to get off the ground for an upcoming research trip to Bermuda in January is a stereo Pi, so with two cameras, a deep and cheap version of the deep eye where we can use those two cameras to get depth perception, just like our eyes do, so that I could take video on, say, a deep sea floor um, and use that video, take the frames from the video to then reconstruct 3D models from the collected data. So that's my current approach is to develop that housing that I've been working on for the circuit board um, and finish, polish up the code a bit so that I can get a video stream if, say, this camera system is mounted on an ROV of some sort and it drives a transect in the same way that diver would do and collects the video stream, and then in post-processing, I can take frames from that video stream that is now, we don't need to use any of those scale bars because it has those two cameras that give us the depth um, from the two images already. And then I could take those frames and reconstruct it into a 3D model, so then maybe we can move forward with those quantitative ecology techniques that I had used for shallower water environments as well. Yeah, and I guess also you can cover a lot more distances, like you said, you you can be going deep, but also like over a larger area uh, once the ROV is done there. And what I was curious, like what are some of the main challenges when you do this kind of research? Uh, you know, with your camera, the ROV, like it's, it's, it seems like pretty highly technical. What are like some of the main challenges when you do this kind of work? I would say the main challenges that I've been facing have been just, diff I'm, I'm, very new to dealing with Raspberry Pi boards and how those hardware systems work and how to properly develop software and different coding scripts to communicate it, communicate to it the way that I want it to then respond with what I want it to do. So it's just been a lot of trial, trial and error in that way. And then sometimes it's even as simple as they are cheap parts, the Raspberry Pi boards and their cameras. And sometimes I'm dealing with an error for a while and I realize, oh, it's just because this camera is bad and I have to switch it. It wasn't even a coding error to begin with. It's just, oh, I guess I have to switch this camera. <laughs> I see. So a lot of, yeah, trial and error and yeah. And is it something that you're going to test, you said in January in Bermuda? Yeah, we're doing a research retreat for two weeks in Bermuda. And we'll be bringing our 3D printers with us too, so we'll be able to create new parts. Um, but yeah, that those two weeks will be focused on testing and seeing if we can get that next step from getting a video stream, maybe anchoring it onto some sort of payload or ROV of some sort 
to collect the data and then convert it into a 3D model. And it's amazing that you can bring basically the lab with you. You know, if you have the 3D printer and all the the equipment, it's like a, a mobile lab almost. Yeah, it is basically like a mobile lab. That's that's what we're trying to lean towards is basically having a couple of storage containers that we set a, send ahead of us that has everything that we could possibly need. And it's a mobile workspace for us to print a new housing overnight or print apart because a piece broke off or we need it to fit a little differently. And we're right there at our field site to test it. So we can we can build a completely new part and test it immediately in the ocean. And why do you, why was Bermuda the destination being chosen? Is it because of previous projects happening there or is there any specific reason? Yeah, there are a couple reasons. One of them is that we have a connection with the Bermuda Institute of Ocean Sciences And Brennan has taken the lab quite a few times to stay at BIOS and do their research out of there. But the other reason is that the way that Bermuda is structured, you don't have to drive very far by a boat to get to a deep environment. On the Atlantic coast, we have quite a large continental shelf before you get to thousands of meters deep. But off of Bermuda, you can take your boat out, I don't know, I'd don't actually know any of any specifics of how far we go out, but it's much closer to just drive the boat out for, you could easily do a day trip where you're just out on the water all day and you're already at a site that it goes down to 1500 meters, 2000 meters, 3000 meters, where is, those are the environments that we actually want to test this equipment for. So we could use it for larger scale research vessel trips as well. Yeah, no, that totally makes sense then, you know, like a, for the logistics and everything. So talking about, you know, research rate all cheaper if you use cheaper material and go to a site that is easily accessible. Yeah, it opens like a lot more opportunities uh, for this type of work. And, um, and going back to the question, like if you had any, like all the resources available you could have, what would be your, your dream project? What you would like to do and why? My dream project. I think if I had all of the resources available, I would really love to characterize all of the living space on the deep sea floor. I think it's really important for us as a scientific community and even further as the general public to understand what types of ecosystems are acting in deep sea environments that we're not even aware of that affect all of our coastal resources as well. I think currently our major topics are how do we mitigate climate change and how are we doing, what what can we do to support our environment rather than destruct it? And I think with people wanting to go and mine the deep sea before we even understand what types of ecosystems might be supporting other trophic levels from the coasts, because the ocean is all connected, it circulates, and we don't know how those ecosystems that we're, that there might be way more than we're even aware of now, and how they relate to all of our coastal resources, how they relate to fisheries. So I think it would be really cool if I had unlimited resources to characterize every single inch of existing coral reef ecosystems or any biologically productive ecosystems on the deep sea floor yeah no that would be yeah great to have such a it's a map of the 
of the deep sea floor. And also, I can see in your work, like how, I mean, I, I'm sure some of part of the of your work may also evolve into being more inter interdisciplinary. Like, are you working, for example, with, uh, because if you take those videos with the ROV, are you going also to look at, you know, living organisms that are more like swimming instead of being on those coral reef structures or being part of them or the coral reefs themselves? Like, are you going to be able to capture what is basically moving around? And do you know if anyone would be interested in, in looking into that? Oh, absolutely. I think that is another really big interest field is what other pre-swimming organisms are going to be around those ecosystems. So it would be a slightly different method because it's not the same as mapping something like a coral or something that does not move often. But something that Brennan and I had discussed a bit for potential future work is creating an N camera system. So any number of cameras to optimize taking a picture instantaneously of an organism swimming in the water column. Reducing backscatter is one of the main issues with that one so that you're not if you have lights on this system, how are you not picking up reflections from different marine debris and dust floating through the water column? But being able to have, say, 10 or 11 cameras all take a picture at once of an organism instantaneously, theoretically, you can then take all of those images or video and reconstruct a 3D model of that free-swimming organism, which is a great way to characterize the different morphologies of organisms in the midwater column as well yeah wow that yeah that would be great and suddenly you know I, I try to imagine when you go to you know those 3d theaters <laughs> but after you can even make like short movies or something when people feel like they're basically you know going underwater uh in in, in the deep sea environment that would be really cool yeah definitely something that i'm Another side project I worked on at UH Hilo, but something that I think is a good avenue to continue exploring is we created a virtual reality coral reef museum um, to be displayed at the Moku Papapa Discovery Center in Hilo. I helped take some screen grabs of some individual coral species and wrote little bios about them for the what we called the museum gallery, because you would walk through in a virtual reality headset and you would walk through and you would see essentially a museum and you would walk up and say, okay, I want to go dive on this reef. And you'd click it and it'd pop up with one of the main dominant coral species in the little bio that I wrote. And then you go into the reef and you're able to swim on this beautiful reef that is pristine from the Northwestern Hawaiian Islands that most people never get to see in their lives. And this way, you're connecting the public with something that is so important and so beautiful and so moving for many people that it makes them want to know more about how they can protect it or donate to different research foundations that are looking into those methods. Um, so that was a really cool project to be part of. And I'd hope to continue that with the stereo vision camera that I'm working on now because with those two streams of video, it should be relatively simple to convert it into a VR style uh, data file. Yeah, no, that would be fantastic. And it's true, I did, uh, yeah, did something like someone was experimenting uh, also virtual reality. I think it was 
here in Washington with um, Olympic Coast National Marine Sanctuaries. They had a little booth and we were trying, they were doing that. And I think it's fantastic if you can, yeah, uh, use that because you feel really like you're in the middle of it. And I'm sure with, you know, new technologies and improvements is going to be like looking so real. Um, and you can also make the music if you want to add music to that too. Yeah, totally. And um, so what is, what I was wondering too, like in the deep sea, what are some of the main threats to this kind of environment? Because it's kind of, you know, foreign for most people because it's really deep. You don't have much light. Um, you know, temperatures are pretty cold. So what are the main threats um, to those environments? I don't necessarily know of specific threats to those environments that might differ from our coastal environments, but I would say that the same, just overall, ocean temperatures rising is a huge threat for everything that has adapted to the temperature that it is or was before, um, especially with the way that the ocean circulates water. If we start having these bottom water water masses increasing in temperature, we have no idea how that might affect our oceans overall, because those cold water influxes during the ocean circulation is what brings really productive systems through, say, the coast of California, or even the Atlantic coast, when you get those blooms, and just high periods of productivity where the reefs just thrive. Yeah, no, it's true. And, and also, you mentioned earlier, like, um, how mining, you know, deep sea mining and those kind of activities also, we don't know the damages they may cause too. So that's why it's really important to know what is living there and what are some of the factors that are affecting them and, and how to protect them or see the snowball effect. Like if something is happening in the deep sea, how it's going to affect, like you said earlier, like the whole trophic chain. Absolutely. We have no idea how doing something like mining for oil in the deep sea could affect our coastal resources, but ultimately that immediate ecosystem. I mean, I can't, I can't imagine that drilling through a coral reef would be beneficial for the coral reef at all. So, And uh, so you just uh, started your research and, um, and you're just studying your PhD. So it's hard. It's like a question or so I, I don't like when people are asking me, but I, I'm still going to ask you, like, do you have any, you know, I'm not going to ask you, when do you think you're going to finish? I won't ask this one. Um, <laughs> but what would be, you know, what would you like to do next? Um, any idea? Or for example, do you like to stay in academia, explore more, you know, the private sector? Um, I don't know. Or maybe you can be just like, I, I have no idea right now, you know, one thing at a time. Yeah, I do have some idea. I know that I really enjoyed my periods of time that I did collaborate with NOAA. And I've always been very interested in their Office of Ocean Exploration. Um, so I think that that is more of the sector that I'd like to explore after my graduate degree. Um, I don't know. I don't think I would stay in academia immediately. I might fall back to that at some point. Who knows? But I'm definitely very interested in participating in different agencies, especially NOAA, maybe working for something like HUI or, um, sorry, that's Woods Hole Ocean Institute or MBARI, which is Monterey Bay, oh man, Aquatic Resource Institute, something like that. <laughs> it's funny. I'm really familiar with the, the acronym, but don't ask me exactly what this means. Yeah, I don't know if I'm positive about the MBARI one. <laughs> 
But um, no, yeah, that's and and I have actually friends uh, working in those those places, and yeah, they they're doing great research. So yeah, and after you never know, you see based on opportunities and things that you may discover that you like more than others. Um, but yeah, and and because um, I don't know because of your love for the ocean and and what you want to do next. Um, is there anything after that, and also combining your love for you know the arts in a way that was your background? After is there a specific message you would like to to share to I don't know our listeners, other you know students, young students who like to figure out what they they want to do next? And because like with you, you can sh- show that you can start doing a little of everything and eventually you know try to go the path you like, um, or anything that you like. You know, tell our listeners that you know think they should check out. You know, um, related to deep sea environment, for example, or virtual reality places. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I would say ultimately, I, I think that everyone can be a little scared about not knowing what to do next or not knowing where their path is going. But if you're passionate about something and it excites you, just try it. I definitely very quickly found out I didn't want to actually be in music industry, but I had loved it for so many years that I thought that I could, that's what I wanted to turn my career into. And it turned out my other passion, which was scuba diving, was more connected with what I wanted to do with my life. Um, And I don't regret that semester I spent at New Orleans. I actually have some really fond memories there. And I think that overall, it, it helped me grow as a person, being able to decide to switch my field entirely the amount of surprised reactions I get when I tell people I started in music is uh (laughs) quite humorous (laughs) but ultimately it it didn't set me back I think I'm exactly where I needed to be right now and I wouldn't have made it to this exact point if I hadn't started that way um as far as resources go I just I don't know I think there's so much information out there my some of my favorite things that reignite my inspiration for studying the ocean are pretty common, like Blue Planet. Um, everyone really loved my octopus teacher. That was a great one. Just different things that reconnect you with the ocean environment. I personally, scuba diving is my biggest um, humbling experience that I have whenever I'm maybe a little lost in motivation. Whenever I'm diving again, I I reconnect with why I want to study the ocean and reconnect with my motivations and the inspiration that drove me to this point yeah no I I agree like diving I think also is um is a time where I mean it's it's really therapeutic is what I would say um and it was really relaxing for me and uh, it was my time it was in my little world and um Nobody can bother you. You just like nobody can talk to you. So you're just like looking around and uh, observing and floating around and yeah. And every time you see something new, even if you go to the same place. So yeah. No, I agree. Makes me want to go scuba diving again if I can one day. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I'm really stoked to go diving again later this week. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be a, a different kind of diving, right? It's not the same water temperature, so it's going to be. Oh yes, gear. it's very different than Hawaii. <laughs> <laughs> no, but no, I I'm really 
wishing you, you know, the best for your research and also exploring this new part of the US, like New England and Rhode Island. <laughs> Hopefully you will survive your first winter. It's going to be maybe a little brutal, but you'll be fine. Just make sure to, you know, to have, you know, good layers and good shoes. You'll be okay. And, uh, and yeah, and for the diving, it should be also a new kind of experience, but I'm sure you, you will enjoy it. And, and yeah, and good luck with your, with your research. And I'm sure it will bring, you know, great things based on everything you shared with us. And, um, yeah, and really thank you for sharing all that with us. And I will make sure to share, you know, links to, to the different universities uh, you've been part of or, you know, the lab you've been part of also with uh, Dr. John Burns and um, things like that. So our audience can check our website and, and continue to learn more about your work and future work. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> Thank you. Bye-bye.